Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Rachel Korberg, executive director and co-founder of the Families and Workers Fund, a coalition of philanthropies working to build a more equitable U.S. economy. She also serves as president of the board at the Stonewall Community Foundation, one of the largest funders of LGBTQIA plus causes. She has a master's in public policy from Yale, executive training in human-centered design from Stanford's Graduate School of Business, and has been a featured speaker at the Federal Reserve, United Nations, National League of Cities, Aspen Institute, and many universities. The focus of our conversation today will be job quality what it is, why it matters, and how to measure it. Rachel Korberg, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. When I think about jobs in the U.S., there are really two things that I tend to focus on, almost to the exclusion of really everything else, and that's the unemployment rate and median wages. And, you know, sometimes maybe I'll look at like labor force participation rate, but really, That's as far as it goes. And I guess to start with, would you say that those are the most important indicators when we're looking at jobs, at least maybe as a starting point? Those are good starting points, you know, but to me, I would back up even further, actually. Um, To me, the most important question is, you know, how are people doing? Are, Are folks okay? The U.S. is one of the wealthiest, most innovative countries in the world. We're very fortunate that we actually would have the capacity to ensure every adult and child doesn't have to go to bed hungry, can live a secure, dignified life. But we know that's not the case, right? So while we've made a lot of progress, we have a lot more to make. More than a third of fully employed people don't earn enough to cover the basics like rent, transportation, food. We're not talking about anything fancy here. Um, and that's not even adding the other you know, 10% or so that live officially at or below the poverty line. And this is United Way data. Um, So to me, you know, the unemployment rate and the median wage, those are important, but they're really just the tip of the iceberg. All they're going to tell us is, do you have a job or not? And what does the average person at that company earn? You know, we're not going to know, well, what are you earning if you're actually way below the average? We're not going to know, can you take time off and bond with your new baby or take care of your aging parent? We're not going to know, do you have health insurance that's going to let you, you know, stand up to that cancer diagnosis? 
Uh, we're not going to know, do you have a chance to get promoted? Even if you're from the wrong town, you got the wrong degree, you don't look the same as the rest of the company. So there's a lot that it doesn't tell us. But but yeah, they can be starting points for sure. And I guess based on that, the, the danger at least is that we look at, say, uh, you know, unemployment rate at I don't know, three point something percent where it is right about now. It's historically low, practically. And and we think, well, there's not really a jobs problem in the United States. And you would argue that, no, that's actually pretty misleading, right? You know, it's great that the unemployment rate is low. That's huge. It means uh, in that way, our economy is healthy and that workers have options. And that is that's good for all of us. But yes, we've definitely got room for improvement. We do have a jobs problem. Um, and when the unemployment rate is low and companies are fighting for talent, they're working to you know recruit and retain, it's a great time to make those improvements. And so then when we think about jobs that we can look at, we can look at quantity, we can look at pay, but it seems like quality consists of a lot more than that. And that's maybe where we're not looking Hard enough, I guess. And based on my review of, of the work that, that uh, your organization has done, it seems like there are three basic pillars you point out to, to job quality, uh, economic stability, economic mobility, and then a category equity, respect and voice. And I guess first off, do, you know, do, do I have that right? And if so, maybe we could talk a little bit about those pillars. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you've got the three pillars, right? Uh, economic stability, economic mobility, equity, respect, and voice. That's kind of, you know, a nerdy way to say, are you going to be able to get by, get ahead, and have a say, right? It's pr actually pretty simple. It's pretty basic stuff. Um, in terms of where this definition came from, though, this is one that that we, the Families and Workers Fund, developed with the Aspen Institute. It's highly evidence-based. We looked at very deep research on, you know, what matters to companies, what matters to workers. We um, workshopped it with employers and with workers. We met with um, a huge group of experts, business leaders, economists, um, labor leaders. And ultimately, when we put out, you know, what is now the most broadly shared, broadly endorsed definition of what makes a job good, we now have more than 250 signatories. And these are not folks that are on the same page about everything, but this is the definition they all share, right? So to give you know examples, um, Chipotle signed on, SEIU, one of the largest labor federations signed on, right? So I think this is really a vision of what you should be able to expect from work that we can all get behind. You should be able to get by, get ahead, have a say. And I certainly, it would be hard for me to understand how, why anyone would disagree with that as sort of a general matter. But I think oftentimes maybe the problem comes with when we get into the specifics and, and for instance, economic stability. Uh, now, when I look at that term, when I think about that term initially, what I think about is, well, uh, wages, because of course a high wage, well, other things being equal, give you more stability. But I, I would, I would imagine that really when you're talking about economic stability, you're talking about a lot more than just what a wage is, right? Yes, pay, you know, is absolutely critical. Um, you're absolutely right there. But yeah, there's more to it than that. You know, are the benefits um, affordable? Are they accessible to you? That includes things like, you know, paid sick days or um, paid medical leave or health insurance. Um, is it fair compensation? You know, unfortunately, there have been too many cases where, 
actually, you know, women or people of color may not be earning what is appropriate and fair compared to others in the company. Um, is there job security? You know, uh, we, is there some sort of reasonable expectation of job security? So these are all the pieces that lead to um, a worker and their family ultimately being able to have a sense of stability from the job. But absolutely, I think, you know, pay is, is really critical. And, and we see that in opinion polling and when you talk to workers themselves. And when we focus on economic mobility, is that just is that the ability to move up within the organization or the ability to take your skills somewhere else or some combination of those things? Yeah, exactly. So with economic mobility, you know, we all want to know that our talent can be recognized and that we're going to have opportunities for training and to advance in the company or to draw from our current job and be able to kind of leverage that into advancement somewhere else. Uh, so that is, that's all absolutely critical. Um, and there's a lot of exciting change happening here. For example, there's a movement among many large, you know, Fortune 500 employers to say, maybe we should be not requiring college degrees for every single job. Does, does every job really require this degree? If someone can prove they've got the skills, they've got the potential, can we make this job accessible to them? Uh, so that's the type of change we're really excited to see around um, mobility and the opportunity to progress in advance. I would imagine with mobility, there's maybe an inherent tension between employers and the employees and that if, if employers are committed to uh, training employees and helping to upskill them and so forth, they also don't necessarily want to do that and be a training program for some other company, right? And so I, there could be, I, I would imagine, almost a, a natural tension there, right? That's absolutely right. There can be a tension. But I will say that a lot of companies that, you know, perform extremely well in the stock market and and are seen as big successes have been doing really meaningful investment in their workforce and have been for a long time cross training um, paid training opportunities paid education so um, yes that can always be a challenge but I think ultimately if you're creating a, a workplace environment where people can thrive where they look forward to coming to work those investments are going to more than pay off. And I'll say, especially in a tight labor market, a big part of your strategy um, as a company isn't just to recruit and, and hire new talent, but it's actually to retain and advance your people. And then finally, we have that third pillar, equity, respect and voice. And what does that kind of in more detail consist of in your view? Yeah, this is the most, you know, I want to be really clear. This is the most challenging one. Um, to really measure and, and be very specific about. It's also, though, the one that you hear in some ways as the most or one of the most important from workers themselves. So, you know, with equity, respect, and voice, folks want to know that um, they have a sense of purpose and belonging at work. Many workers want to know that they're part of something bigger than themselves. They want to know that they, you know, have a fair shot, that they're going to be treated fairly at work. They're going to be treated respectfully, regardless of, you know, where they're from, what their, you know, racial or gender identity is, uh, what kind of degree they have, that sort of thing. Um, and then the other thing that we we hear that's really important is if there's a challenge in the workplace or if they see a way to improve it, they want to be able to have a voice to do that. You know, I think we all see that. And, and in fact, it's a huge value to companies if folks who are, you know, on the front lines of your workforce 
can say, you know, hey, something's breaking down in production over here or, you know, something um, we could do something more efficiently over here. But you've really got to invest in a culture where people feel that they'll be trusted to say that and that there won't be, you know, retaliation or repercussion if they have a differing perspective than leadership. And how does, in your view, how does this tie into kind of the, I guess, the, the wider world of DEI? Mm-hmm. I think that, um, well, first of all, I like to break down those acronyms because we are in a period where everything with an acronym sounds scary <laughs> to someone. Sure. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, it's tied in in the sense that we all want to be treated fairly. We want to be seen for who we are. We don't want to be judged based on the way that we look or the place that we're from. We want to be um, fully evaluated for who we are and all of our potential and skills. So to me, that's what it's about. Um, we can use the acronym. We could use a different acronym. Um, but ultimately, it's about ensuring that we aren't leaving talent on the sidelines and that um, we're letting people bring their full potential and talents to the workplace. And we're benefiting from that. And, and we'll all benefit from that the more places, the more workplaces are able to um, fully embrace people and um, let everybody thrive. Yeah, I, I've been the last few days, especially I've been really thinking about quality jobs and what makes for a quality jobs, doing a lot of reading in preparation to talk to you. And there was one thing I wanted to ask you about, because I don't know where it's captured or if it's captured in these categories, but there's this idea that work should uh, be not just an economic means, right, and it should be treated well, but that work should be in some deeper sense, meaningful, provide you with a sense of purpose or fulfillment. I mean, and, you know, this is, I think, been a big concern of, well, kind of critics of capitalism. You know, you look at Marx and alienation of labor, right? The, the arts and crafts movement that followed that and industrialization and their concerns about people that this kind of little doing this little division of labor kind of jobs and it's inherently disconnected. And, and, and even more recently, you have like David Graeber, who talked about what he called bullshit jobs. right? And, and I guess I'm wondering, I, I would think everyone would agree that it's better to have a job that provide you a sense of meaning and fulfillment, but I wasn't quite clear if that fit in any of these categories or if it did, where you would put it. I would put it in this third category. It's really about this sense of, you know, purpose and belonging. Let's be clear for folks who want to, you know, go do their best, work hard, show up from nine to five and go home and never think about their job again. There's got to be a place for that in our economy. That is a perfectly reasonable way to work. And it's how a lot of good work has been done. For others, uh, we want a sense of purpose and belonging and being part of something bigger than ourselves through work. And there is a place for that as well, right? Both are important. And I would say for me, you know, personally as, as a manager, because I come at this not just as someone who, you know, specializes in job quality policy and in workforce development, but also as someone who runs an organization. And I think for me, I really see that folks perform their best when you can help to together create a workplace culture of purpose and care and joy. You know, when I go to work feeling excited to see my colleagues, uh, feeling excited about the work we're going to do, having a sense that I'm really contributing to something, I'm going to do my best. Um, and I think that's the case for a lot of people. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. 
and they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. So let's move into measurement because I, I agree, not, not surprisingly, I think I agree very broadly with, with all of these things that you're talking about, what makes for a, a quality job. But then the, the social scientist in me says, well, okay, uh, I know how we measure median wages. I know how we measure unemployment. And even there are some problems with those. And so when we're talking about things like equity, respect and voice or even stability and, and, and mobility, it seems to me that we start to run into some pretty significant uh, measurement issues. I, I wanted to get your take on what you see as the big challenges here. Yeah, some aspects of job quality just are harder to measure than others. I think you're totally right. Um, there's still more, though, that we could be measuring than just average wage and if people have a job or don't have a job, right? There's actually a lot more data that's already being collected that we could be using. But yes, you know, a variable like, um, you know, do do workers feel like they really have a voice in the say on the job? That is more challenging to measure, but it's, it is doable, right? I mean, the research excellence and innovation we have in this country is extraordinary. It's absolutely unparalleled. Um, so we can look at things like worker sentiment surveys. Uh, we do this in so many aspects of our economy. I mean, my goodness, we, you know, test and probe our economy like it's a Thanksgiving Day turkey. We we really are constantly, you know, checking in on it. And I think that it's it's at our own peril if we don't deploy some of those tools to measure job quality in much more rigorous and robust ways. Yeah, I'm certainly for that. But I one concern I guess I would have is oftentimes when these things are reported, because there are there have been, you know, a bunch of other measures, maybe not as widespread or systematic. And it seems to me that the focus tends to be on some one number, right? Overall satisfaction, overall quality. And and I started to wonder, well, what does that exactly mean? I try to put myself in the position of somebody looking for a job and you know, I could be in a position where, say, I, I care about pay. I, and I if I can get more money, even if my boss is an awful jerk, I'm okay with that. That's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. And so I wonder what you think about uh, these, you know, these overall measures of job satisfaction and what they tell us and maybe what they obscure as well. Yeah, it's a great question because we all make our trade-offs, right? No job is perfect. That's just not how it works. You know, I might choose a job that has a shorter commute, but pays me a little bit less uh, because I've got a kid at home and that's my priority right now. And someone else might choose a longer commute that pays more, right? These are the trade-offs we're all entitled to make and we're all making all the time. I do think that we can still align more around what are some of the basics that uh, should be part of every quality job, every job in this country? And that's really what the definition, this North Star that we provided with the Aspen Institute set out to do. I think if we are only looking at satisfaction overall, that can be helpful in aggregate and it can allow for some of these you know, differences in preferences to be accounted for. Um, but a preference is different than what should be a minimum standard, right? No one should be working full time and not able to keep food on the table. No one should be sexually harassed on their job. Nobody should be overlooked for promotion because they're from, you know, a small rural town. 
uh, or they're black or, you know, they're transgender. So these are kind of the basics. And that's really different than a preference or then, you know, trading off, you know, different aspects of a job to make it better match with your life or your family. And who would you say should be doing this work, right? Because I mean, it's a, it's a big job and, and kind of gathering all this together. Uh, is this is federal government, state governments, nonprofits, universities? Or, or, what do you think? How do you see this breaking down if we were to kind of tackle this problem as, as I know you want us to? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, first I'll put in a little plug, which is <laughs> We um we recently hosted something called the Job Quality Measurement Initiative that asked exactly that. It brought together about, you know, 70 leaders from mostly researchers and academics, but also leaders in, you know, government data, in um, industry data, et cetera. And I do think there's actually a role for all of the institutions that you mentioned. I know that's a messy answer, but actually all of those institutions are already involved in providing other types of economic data. So they're all going to be at the table. I would say, though, you know, what we to me, if I boiled it down to what's going to be most important in moving the needle here is going to include some sort of regular, consistent government report on job quality. And I think right now we can work with, you know, universities and academics to kind of get a little bit closer to what that might look like. But just like we, you know, rely on the monthly jobs report to tell us what the unemployment rate is and what average wages are, I really do think in the future, we're going to have a monthly report that also includes an indicator of job quality. And so you're kind of envisioning maybe BLS releases this along with uh, along with their other kind of regular monthly reports. And it's reported on in uh, Wall Street Journal, New York Times and all that. And kind of that's that's kind of the the ideal endpoint for this, would you say? Well, there's a lot of demand for that. And let's be clear, a lot of the demand for that is coming from the private sector. I mean, just yesterday, U.S. News and World Report released its you know, new uh, best companies to work for list. I was an advisor on it, I say as a disclaimer, but, you know, Fortune's got one, Just Capital has a, a brilliant index. So this is all because there's demand, you know, investors want to invest in the companies that are investing in their workforce and, and aren't going to be rocked by issues like the Great Resignation. Um employers like want to know that they're going to measure up well against competitors. So we're seeing a lot of demand and, and interest in this because of the business value of it. So yes, I do think that we're already seeing private data providers respond to that interest and start to generate more and different data, still early days, but promising signals. And I do um, really envision a future where this would be a core part of public sector data as well. I can see how this would be really useful for, I guess, for businesses and investors. I hadn't thought about the investors thing uh, really so much. But again, I want to go back to the perspective of the worker or the, or the potential worker. I, I mean, I've worked, I've looked for you know, a few jobs in my lifetime. And honestly, I, sure, I guess I'd care about the overall state of the economy and job satisfaction or even my sector. But Really, what matters to me is, you know, is this a good place to work at? Right. And and, you know, you can maybe if you're on an interview, you can talk to some people, but that's kind of a haphazard, not a very uh, systematic sort of thing. And so I guess I'm wondering, do you think that there's a way to do this in, in a manner that allows prospective employees to kind of 
in a sense, kind of look at reviews like we do for so many things, right, on Amazon or or all kinds of other things where we can just say, oh, well, you know, this company's rated 4.8 for uh, equity and voice, but, you know, 5 for salary. I mean, is that is that even feasible, do you think? Absolutely. Ultimately, you know, the most important consumer of this data in many ways is going to be workers themselves. And and job seekers. That's so important. And there are, you know, some sites, um, many people know of them, Glassdoor and others, where people can, you know, post reviews and post information. Um, I do believe that that data is going to start being used as one of the sources for kind of a job quality index or a job quality composite score. So um, ultimately, this data has got to be useful to workers. It's got to help, you know, job seekers make the best choices and find the jobs that are the best fit for them. And then we'll be in a future that we're getting closer and closer to. And, and we already see in some industries where you'll see companies actually really competing to be the best, most attractive employer. Maybe one of the problems that I foresee is it's what I call a response rate problem? Because I, I think about, you know, reviews of, I mean, I, I'm reviewed on things like Rate My Professors and that, but it's such a small sample and it's not a random sample that the data that's generated from that may or may not be representative of, you know, how I actually am, right, as a provider of, of professor services. And so, I, I mean, do you see that as being a significant hurdle to get enough people, because I, I would imagine this would involve uh, employees being comfortable commenting on their employers, especially for things like, you know, uh, uh, equity and, and respect and voice. And so do you see that as being a significant problem? And if so, how maybe do we try to uh, overcome that? It's funny that you bring up right, my professor. My uh, my academic friends tell me you've got to take a stiff drink before you start reading <laughs> yeah, definitely. <those> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, no, the response rate is a real problem. Um, it, it's always going to be a challenge. And that's why, you know, there's other options like surveys. You know, you don't want to rely on only something that people may report the absolute best and worst experiences. And a survey can be helpful in that. I, now, kind of thinking about how conservatives might look at this. I mean, I'm a person of, of the center left. And I, it seems like I would say, be fair to say that you're a person of the left as well. But, you know, we're a bipartisan podcast, and I, I'm sure that for conservative listeners who have gotten to this point, uh, one question that's emerged is, well, uh, this isn't a real problem, or maybe a statement. This isn't a problem. They don't see it as a problem, at least not a problem for government, because I think the general conservative view here is that, hey, let's let the market take care of this. And honestly, if this information were that important to everyone, well, the market would have provided it already. And the fact that it's not is an indication that, well, it's just not that important. And what we don't want to do is create some big government bureaucracy that forces companies into these reporting requirements and so forth. And, and that's why should we do that? And what what's your response to people who have that view? Yeah. So first, just on, you know, bipartisanship, I um, just want to name Families and Workers Fund, my organization, fully nonprofit. Um, and on a personal level, you know, I believe deeply in the project of a bipartisan country. I'm actually from a purple county in Pennsylvania. That's one of the, I think it's 5% or so of congressional districts that still swings. That's really like in my DNA in a lot of ways. Um, and I'm actually in a program right now called Presidential Leadership Scholars. That's this 
bipartisan group of of um folks who are all talking about how do we, you know, govern and move forward and create change together in a divided country. So like that is the work. Um, I don't think that this is a partisan issue. And I think the opinion polling reflects that. I think this is a kitchen table issue. Does your job let you keep food on the table? Does your job ensure that you have health insurance? Does your job let you take care of your kid, right? Like this is not partisan stuff. This is just all people stuff. Um, and I think that really does come through in the data. For example, there was a um, Harris Just Capital poll that asked people about what are their main priorities of companies um, when it comes to you know their impact. And the number one thing was fair pay, right? And that was true across political affiliation, race, region, gender, age. So I will say our country may not agree on much, <laughs> but we really do agree that when you work hard, it should add up to a good life. So I would I, I would sort of disagree a little bit that this is even a partisan issue. But on on your point about you know the markets, um, our labor markets are actually artificially low and, and broken and distorted by bad policy right now. And one of those policies that shows this most clearly is the minimum wage. So, you know, our minimum wage is stuck. We haven't done the sensible thing lots of other countries do where we just index it to inflation. And, you know, we all know how, how serious inflation has been in, in the past year plus, right? Um, instead, we've got we've to vote on it. My goodness, we've got to vote on it in, you know, a divided Congress. So right now, our minimum wage is federally is $7.25 an hour. And if you're a tipped worker, right, you work at a restaurant, $2.13 an hour because the tip's got to get you up to the $7.25. So that line actually for most families is below the federal poverty line. So here's what we've done. We've said, this is the number that you've got to at least pay folks per hour. And by the way, that number will put you in poverty. So that is a wild thing to do policy-wise and, and politically. It is poverty by policy design. So actually, our policy is distorting markets from paying people what they should be paid. I would also say, you know, what we were just talking about, Glassdoor, these places where, you know, employees are coming together to share information, that actually is the markets trying to solve a problem. That's people saying, there's an information asymmetry here. We don't know enough to make decisions about where to work, what is a good job. Um, so we're going to try to pull that information because that information isn't being created and shared more broadly. There's not that transparency. A sort of a related concern, I guess, would be uh, for any kind of like significant measurement project like this is going to be going to impose costs and someone has to bear those costs. And, and you can say, well, the, the huge corporations of the world, if, if they're the ones who bear them, well, they might pass them on to consumers in part. But they can bear those costs, but there's a concern as well. If, if we impose any kind of greater cost on businesses, it's likely to hurt small businesses the most. And so, I mean, how, how do you, I guess, how do you see this as being paid for and how do we avoid hurting those kind of small mom and pop kind of businesses through re reporting requirements that might be seen as kind of onerous or difficult for smaller businesses? Yeah, it's a critical question. I mean, small and mid-sized businesses are a huge part of the lifeblood of not only our economy, but our culture, right, and our communities. So we've got to make sure that this is not a big burden. 
Um, there's actually a lot of data companies are already collecting and reporting to the government that we're just not publishing and making transparent, right? So for example, uh, to get really wonky, there's some data called EO1 data that's essentially on, you know, more detailed pay and demographics data. Pretty much any company that's got more than 100 employees already has to collect that and already has to um, uh, report it to the U.S. government. So why can't we use that data then to um, get a little bit closer to measuring and providing a measure of job quality? So I would say, let's start with the stuff companies are actually already collecting. Um, the other thing is that, you know, the digitization of a lot of employer services, payroll services, benefits provision is also going to make the data a lot easier to collect. Um, and finally, you know, we're going to have to make some trade-offs. We've got to make sure that this doesn't become a big burden for small and mid-sized businesses. But given, you know, the level of tech innovation that we have in society today, um, given the, you know, range of different data solutions we can use here, I'm confident that there is a much better way forward that at least gets closer to measuring job quality than where we're at today. And Given all the time, and you spent obviously a lot of time thinking about job quality and job quality measurement, uh, I'm sure you have some thoughts on, in the U.S. landscape, what employers maybe tend to do best and what areas maybe we need the most work in. I'd love to get your thoughts on that. You know, it really varies not only by employer, but by industry to some extent. So, you know, here's what I would say. Um, to employers. Just do a survey and a listening process with your workforce. Uh, I, I'll shout out some companies that have done this really well. Um, PayPal actually did a survey of the financial wellness of their workforce. Uh, the CEO was actually really shocked and uh, he you know, acknowledges this publicly, which is, which is really extraordinary and impressive leadership. He found that a pretty significant proportion of the, the lowest paid part of the workforce was struggling uh, to pay all their bills between paychecks. They were really just barely getting by. And in recognizing that, um, he didn't look away from it and say, you know, not my problem. Uh, he said, we're going to have to solve this. And ultimately, the company raised pay, provided grants of stock ownership to a broader group of employees, improved the affordability of benefits. So, you know, ultimately, companies aren't going to know where they're doing best and where they're most in need of improvement if they don't just ask their workforce. And there's a lot of good tools to do that now. Um, we're supporting an initiative built out of the PayPal experience called the Workforce Financial Wellness Initiative. It's a partnership of Just Capital, the Financial Health Network, and the Good Jobs Institute. So these are three, you know, nonpartisan nonprofits. And uh, it provides a range of tools for companies to go and do just this and figure out what they do best and where they need improvement. There's um, about a dozen, you know, large, many Fortune 500 companies that are involved in this right now. And I think it's really exciting stuff. So let's say that you're magically made Secretary of Labor uh, tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, maybe that, that sounds awful to me, but whatever. So, <laughs> but let's say you're in that position, right? What would you do kind of like specifically, do you think, to improve job quality measurement? What actions would you take? And also, I guess, kind of along with that, uh, I'm going to assume that not all these things are happening right now. And I'd like to get your take on why you think they're not happening right now and what I would think would be a, an administration that would likely be very receptive and responsive to this sort of thing. 
Yes. So ultimately, I think there's a few things that we can do. First is investing in job quality measurement in a comprehensive way. So I would look at um, performance data, right? So I would look at data that the U.S. government is receiving from its grantees and contractors and seeing if there isn't some sort of non-burdensome job quality measurement reporting requirement we could build into that. So let me give you a really specific example there. Let's say the U.S. government makes a grant to an organization to train folks who have been displaced from their jobs, right? We should make sure that we're not just training them, but actually that we're connecting them to a good upwardly mobile career. So let's get the data on that. Let's make sure we're using our taxpayer dollars, not just to cycle people in and out of kind of dead end poverty pay work, but that we're getting them into good uplifting jobs. And that's, um, you know, something that would be very exciting for the Department of Labor and, and others to do. I think, you know, second, longer term, you mentioned the Bureau of Labor Statistics and um, the jobs report starting to get a job quality uh, metric into that report. That would be a huge step forward. Um, and then to your question about, you know, this administration, uh, we have been absolutely honored to, to partner officially under an MOU with the Department of Labor on the job quality measurement initiative. So we know that this is an important priority. Uh, we know that the Departments of Commerce and the Departments of Labor put out a whole of government set of principles on defining a good job, because we've got to define this before we can start to measure it. And as far as I know, it's the first time a modern presidential administration has put out a shared whole of government definition. Um, and the other thing I would lift up is um, the first ever good job summit that happened last year. You know, I thought it was this was a um, you know high level convening around defining, measuring and advancing good quality jobs for all. I thought that this was going to be an event with 30 people and I would know them all and I would have worked with them for years. And it was 4,000 people. Wow. It was oversubscribed. And it just showed what a huge priority this is. And it was really fantastic to be at the Department of Labor with leaders from government and outside of government talking about how we can advance good jobs together. And one final question for you, Dad. I think a lot of times when people hear jobs and job quality, that kind of they think of it in an ideological sense, right? Oh, this is something that those lefties are talking about and all that. And, and I wonder how, what, or do you have any optimism that we can take this and make it uh, or, or maybe sell it or not even spin it? Cause that's suggest kind of a level of, of dishonesty, but, but present it as the bipartisan, as you put it, a kitchen table issue that I think it really is and get enough buy-in from Democrats and Republicans to make decent job quality reporting a reality in the near future? I'm optimistic. That's my nature. <laughs> but I'm optimistic for a couple of, you know, real reasons. One is the demand for job quality measurement is real. I hear this from private equity. I hear this from, you know, a whole range of investors, asset owners. Um, I hear this from chief human resource officers, right? We've got to have this information. Um, we've got to have this to navigate a tight labor market. Um, and, you know, most of all, I'm optimistic because of the innovation of the American worker, right? The American worker herself. We know that um, we're hearing, we're, we're seeing in all sorts of ways, workers saying job quality matters to them. You know, that's what the um, so-called great resignation is about. 
This is a huge, massive part of the workforce saying, I'm going to go look for a better job. What I've got here is not enough for me, is not enough for my family. Um, I'm going to look for a place that, you know, maybe pays me more or sees my talent and potential or provides the health insurance my family needs, whatever the case may be. So that's why we really need this information. And I think when you have demand from so many broad parts of society, um, ultimately, we're going to have to meet that demand. Well, I, I certainly hope so. And I'm looking forward to someday going to the BLS site and seeing that kind of dashboard that I'm envisioning in my <laughs> geeky mind. But anyway, Rachel Korberg, <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thanks so much for having me. We hope you enjoyed this Politics Guys interview. And if you did, we'd really appreciate it if you could mention us on social media or however else you share things you like. It would also be great if you could rate and review us on your podcast app. If you've got a question, comment, correction, gripe, manifesto, you want to share it with us, you can reach us a bunch of ways. Mail at politicsguys.com, as well as there's our supporters-exclusive Discord channel, and we're also on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to become a supporter of the show, you can find out more about that at patreon.com slash politicsguys or politicsguys.com slash support. And links to all that are always in our show notes. And finally, a very special thanks to our executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, Don Oglesby, and Ivan English.